Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, May 11th. In today's news, President Trump's top advisors say the unemployment rate could soon reach 25%. More people across America defy stay-at-home orders. And Britain will quarantine all foreign travelers as part of its plan to unlock the lockdown. But first, the big idea. Deborah Coughlin was neither short of breath nor coughing. In those first days after she became infected by the novel coronavirus, her fever never spiked above 100 degrees. It was vomiting and diarrhea that brought her to a Hartford, Connecticut emergency room on May 1st. Deb's daughter, Katharina, says you would have thought it was a stomach virus because she was talking and walking and completely coherent. But even as Deb, who is 67, chatted with her daughters on her cell phone, the oxygen level in her blood dropped so low that most patients would be at or near death. Now, this morning, she is on a ventilator and in critical condition at St. Francis Hospital. One more patient with a strange constellation of symptoms that physicians are racing to recognize, explain, and treat. Today, there is widespread recognition that the novel coronavirus is far more unpredictable than a simple respiratory virus. Often, it attacks the lungs, but it can also strike anywhere, from the brain to the toes. Many doctors are focused on treating the inflammatory reactions that it triggers and its capacity to cause blood clots, even as they struggle to help patients breathe. Learning about a new disease on the fly, which didn't exist six months ago, with more than 79,000 Americans dead this morning because of the contagion. They have little solid research to guide them. The World Health Organization's database already lists more than 14,600 papers on COVID-19. Even the world's premier public health agencies, including the CDC, have constantly been altering their advice and guidance to keep pace with new developments. More than four months of clinical experience across Asia, Europe, and North America has shown that this pathogen does much more than invade the lungs. It attacks the heart, weakening its muscles and disrupting its critical rhythm. It savages kidneys so badly that some hospitals are running short of dialysis equipment. It crawls along the nervous system, destroying taste and smell, and occasionally reaching the brain. It creates blood clots that can kill with sudden efficiency. It inflames blood vessels throughout the body. It can begin with a few symptoms or none at all, and then days later squeeze the air out of the lungs without warning. It picks on the elderly, people weakened by previous diseases, and disproportionately the obese. It harms men far more than women, but this invisible enemy is also complicating many pregnancies and killing off women in their prime as they give labor. COVID mostly spares the young, until it doesn't. Last week, doctors warned of a rare inflammatory reaction with cardiac complications among children that may be connected to the virus. Late Friday, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announced that 73 children in his state had fallen severely ill, and a five-year-old boy in New York City had become the first child there to die of the syndrome. Two more children in the city succumbed on Saturday. The news that kids are being killed by the coronavirus has shaken many doctors who felt they were finally getting a grasp of the full dimension of the disease in adults. The kids that died in New York all started off with fairly routine gastrointestinal symptoms, 
which then turned into inflammatory complications that caused very low blood pressure and expanded their blood vessels. That is what led to heart failure. The pattern of the disease in kids is different than with adults, which is maddening for practitioners on the front lines of the fight. Of the millions, perhaps billions, of coronaviruses, only six were previously known to infect humans. Four caused common colds that spread easily each winter, barely noticed. Another was responsible for the SARS outbreak in 2003 that killed 774 people. Yet another sparked the MERS outbreak in 2012, which kills 34% of people who contract it. But few do. This one, though, the bad seed of the coronavirus family, is the seventh. It has managed to combine the infectiousness of its cold-causing cousins with some of the lethality of SARS and MERS. It can spread before people show symptoms, making it more difficult to control, especially without widespread and accurate testing. At the moment, social distancing is really the only effective countermeasure. Trying to define a pathogen in the midst of an ever-spreading epidemic is fraught with difficulties. Experts say it will be years, years, until it's fully understood how this disease damages organs and how medications, genetics, diets, lifestyles, and distancing impact its course. In the initial days of the outbreak, most of the efforts and focus was on the lungs. This virus infects both the upper and the lower respiratory tracts, eventually working its way deep into the lungs, filling tiny air sacs with cells and fluid that choke off the flow of oxygen. But many scientists have come in recent weeks to believe that much of the disease's devastation actually comes from two intertwined causes. The first is the harm that the virus wreaks on blood vessels, leading to clots that can range from microscopic to sizable. Patients have suffered strokes and pulmonary embolisms as clots break loose and travel to the brain and the lungs. A study in The Lancet, a British medical journal, showed that this may be because the virus directly targets the cells that line blood vessels. Inflammation of those cells may help explain why the virus harms so many parts of the body. The second dynamic is an exaggerated response from the body's own immune system, a storm of killer cytokines that attack the body's own cells along with the virus as it seeks to defend the body from an invader. Research and therapies are focused on these two phenomena. Blood thinners are being much more widely used in some hospitals to prevent clotting. Mandeep Mehra, a professor at Harvard Medical School who was one of the authors on that Lancet study of how COVID-19 attacks blood vessels, explained in an interview that what this virus does is it starts as a viral infection and becomes a more global disturbance to the immune system and blood vessels. And what kills is exactly that. The hypothesis is that COVID-19 is not as much a respiratory virus as a cardiovascular virus. He says that means defeating COVID-19 will require more than antiviral therapy. Now, Deb, the woman in critical condition in Connecticut, I told you about at the top, deteriorated very quickly once she reached the emergency room. Her fever shot up to 105 and pneumonia developed in her lungs. This past Wednesday, she called her six daughters on FaceTime to tell them that doctors had advised her she needed to go on a ventilator. She told them, quote, if something happens to me and I don't make it, I'm at peace with it. All six of Deb's daughters knew that it was the last phone conversation they might ever have with her. It made for a very anxious and uneasy Mother's Day. All they can do now 
is wait and pray. And we're praying with them. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start what will surely be another hellish week in America. Number one, two of President Trump's top economic advisors projected on Sunday that unemployment will keep soaring as the contagion continues its sweep across America. The top White House economic advisor, Kevin Hassett, said unemployment will jump past 20% next month, up from 14.7%, which was reported on Friday. That was the worst jobs report since the Great Depression. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said on Fox News that it could reach 25%. That's as bad as it was at the depths of the Depression. At a time when governors are grappling with how and when to safely reopen their states, the comments by Hassett and Mnuchin underscore that our country is far from snapping back to normal. According to Friday's job reports, the U.S. economy shed 20.5 million jobs in April. No industry has been spared, even white-collar jobs in government and business services that were thought to be relatively safe. Meanwhile, a Senate committee announced that four administration officials who had been set to testify in person on Tuesday will instead do so via video conference because of their proximity and exposure to two White House staffers who've tested positive. One of those staffers is the press secretary to Vice President Pence, who had been attending the coronavirus task force meetings in the Situation Room. Her deputy says Pence plans to be at the White House today, despite his exposure to Katie Miller, the staffer. The Senate Health Committee chairman will also video conference in because Lamar Alexander, the Republican senator from Tennessee, reported on Sunday that one of his staff members tested positive for the virus on Sunday. Alexander himself has tested negative. He tested most recently on Thursday and doesn't have any symptoms, according to his chief of staff. But he will still self-quarantine in Tennessee for 14 days. The virus is approximate incubation period rather than return to Washington. It will make for a surreal hearing. And it's also a reminder that as the president pushes to reopen the country, there's a lot of infections still going around, especially in the Washington region. Number two. Friday was supposed to be a step back toward normal for the Polar Cave ice cream parlor in Cape Cod. Instead, it turned into Mark Lawrence's worst day in the two decades that he's owned the place. People disregarded a rule to order ice cream an hour before pickup and demanded their food anyway. Customers then took out their anger at delays on the four overwhelmed employees, including a teenage girl who was so rattled that she quit. The harassment came as employees around the country face verbal abuse and even violence while trying to navigate a new era of socially distant operations and public health precautions. Mark says he has to close back down now, and he's doing limited orders and pondering the best way forward. Mark says the teenager who quit after a barrage of abuse was one of his best workers, and he praised her for sticking it through her shift despite facing language that, as he put it, you wouldn't even say in a men's locker room. Meanwhile, details are sketchy, but five people were reportedly shot last night at a park in Fort Worth, Texas, that was somehow crowded with 600 people. And a Denver restaurant on Sunday drew massive crowds after fully reopening for Mother's Day in defiance of Colorado's public health order that limits restaurants to takeout and delivery. The owner declared that it was reopening to stand for America, small businesses, the Constitution, and against the overreach of our governor in Colorado. A Chicago-area church sued Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker last week over his stay-at-home orders and then defied those orders by welcoming dozens of worshipers to a Sunday service yesterday. The pastor says the Constitution grants them the right to worship even during the pandemic and even if they're putting public health at risk. 
Meanwhile, images went viral over the weekend from a packed cross-country United Airlines flight. The airline had told customers that the middle seats would be left open for social distancing, but when passengers boarded, the flight was packed. Number three, Prime Minister Boris Johnson told Britons on Sunday that its lockdown will mostly continue through May. Some shops and schools in England could reopen in June and restaurants might start serving again in July. But he says that will only happen if the coronavirus is deemed under control. He says progress will be contingent on the government's ability to ramp up testing, something that is not contingent here in the United States, and to supply enough protective equipment to healthcare workers in hospitals and nursing homes, two settings where the virus is still spreading. With almost 32,000 killed now, Britain has the second largest number of reported deaths in the world after the United States. The prime minister says travelers flying into Britain from abroad will be required to quarantine upon arrival. The government has not described how these periods of isolation up to 14 days would be enforced. Sadly, South Korea's early coronavirus winds have dimmed as a new crop of cases arises there. Health officials said today that more than 50 new cases have been linked to one 29-year-old man who in a single night last weekend visited five clubs and bars in a popular Seoul neighborhood. He tested positive on Wednesday, the same day that the South Korean government rolled out relaxed social distancing guidelines. These fresh virus cases, following days of no reported local infections, show how difficult it is to return to normalcy. President Moon Jae-in, in a national address, pointed to the new cluster of cases and warned that a second wave could arise anytime and anywhere. He said, it's not over until it's over. Meanwhile, Ghana's president said yesterday that a single worker at a fish processing factory there has managed to infect 533 other employees. Meanwhile, Shanghai Disneyland reopened today at partial capacity. Videos on social media show scattered groups of people entering the park's grounds as employees wave at them from a distance. The park has implemented rules to ensure social distancing, including painting large yellow squares on the ground to tell people where to stand as they wait for rides. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, May 11th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.